All right, Ecclesiastes is where we are. Ecclesiastes, we took a break last week to look at, at um, Luke 24 as a little response to Easter. Uh, this week we jump back into Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to be in four sections in Ecclesiastes. We have essentially stopped our section-by-section movement through Ecclesiastes, and now we're going to do some house cleaning. We're going to, you ever, you swept up very systematically in your kitchen, and then you go through and you're like, oh, I did such a good job, but you realize there's all this stuff, it's just like, there's a little tiny pile here, and there's some stuff over there, I've got to bring it all together, and we've got to collect it all together, and uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to start uh, what is, in a sense, a mini-series within the series, um, simply on wisdom, on wisdom, and so I'm going to look at some passages and so we're going to be at four different places, beginning in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Follow along. It will be hard to follow along in your Bible, so follow along on the screen, because I'm going to be jumping around here this morning. All right, wisdom is good with an inheritance. This is chapter 7, verse 11. Wisdom is good. It's good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Dropping down to verse 23 of chapter 7. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep and very deep, who can find it out? Now, in chapter 8, verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do Owen's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And lastly, chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. All right, so I have some questions for you. I have a really, for those of you that are single, here's my question for you Who should you marry? Or even before that, who should you date? Should you marry the person you're currently dating? These are rather important questions for the trajectory of your life, aren't they? For those of you that are looking to work and are about to graduate or are starting trying to pick a degree field, what career should you go into? What should your major be in college? For those of you who are thinking about moving this summer, should you stay here? Should you go there? Should you go anywhere? It's that time of the year in which we always read Dr. Seuss at graduations, right? Should you confront the person in whom you have conflict right now, or should you hold back and give it time? Should you take that risk, or should you play it safe? Should you let your sixth grader go to the end of the year dance? How should you discipline your child in an area of perpetual struggle for them? Do you keep giving grace and mercy over and over and over again? Is it time to for some tough love. Which ministry should you participate in? Are you called to adopt right now or later? How many children should you adopt? Which children? How old should those children be? Are you feeling angsty yet about the nature of these questions? You see, the vast majority of the decisions that we make in life, the rules and the facts, even the rules and facts of the Bible, won't get you there, won't get you the answer. And so what do you need? 
you need wisdom, and you need it desperately. It actually says in the Bible that for the lack of wisdom, men perish. We would love it if life was lived in the black and the white, but the vast, the vast majority of life is lived in the gray. Wisdom is that which you need to make 90% of, the, of life's decisions. And the lack of wisdom is why some of you are making some very foolish choices in your life. As to why the reason why, even though you may follow Jesus for quite some time, you keep finding yourself in financial trouble or other difficulties. You, you, you're struggling and you're unsettled and there is no peace. You're perishing because of a lack of wisdom. In an attempt to relieve ourselves of the tension inside that we feel, we begin to place decisions. What do we do? We place decisions in the black and the white. It, it would be easier if everything was black. Oh, it's just so clear. And then, but then we, what do we do? We've, we've now brought our wisdom up to the level of God's moral code. Or in our lack of wisdom, we settle for hunches. We rely on our feelings and whims. We read between the lines, we close our eyes, and we point somewhere in God's word and we go, there's the truth for me. And this is the beginning of horrendous biblical exegesis. Through the thread throughout Ecclesiastes is this call, get wisdom. Get it, care for it, take good care of the wisdom that God has given you. And throughout wisdom literature, wisdom, the, the, the Bible communicates in the fullest length of metaphor to communicate to you the importance and the beauty and, and, and the, the greatness of wisdom. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we read this morning, wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's not just good, it's good with an inheritance that keeps going and an advantage to those under the sun. It's for the protection of your life. And it, it preserves your life, it says in verse 12. And in Proverbs chapter 8, I mean, Solomon, in the midst of giving pithy statements of wisdom, is consistently coming back and reminding us that, hey, wisdom is just about more important than anything you can get. For example, he says this in chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. Take my instruction. It's, Proverbs is a, is a father writing to a son for the most part. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge is rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all you may desire cannot compare with her. Did you see the progression there? It's better than silver. Actually, we need a better word. It's better than gold. Nope, something even better. No, it's better than diamonds, than jewels, and finally just goes, forget it. It's better than anything you can desire. Get wisdom. All right, this is saying wisdom is infinitely more important than wealth and prosperity and work, and all of these things. This is what Ecclesiastes has been showing us. In a negative sense, he's been ticking through all the things in life that we look to to give us the happy and the good life, right? Things like, uh, he says, wealth and fame and power. He says, those are vapor. They are fleeting. And so often, the moral of the story in Ecclesiastes is this. Wisdom is better, so get wisdom. So, we see that we... We hear that wisdom is important. Wisdom is infinitely more important than gold and silver and jewels and anything on the earth. So we end our time in Ecclesiastes by looking at, a, at wisdom in particular for the next three weeks. This will not be an exegetical look at it. I'm going to be taking little sections here. It's essentially a topical look at, at the idea of wisdom for the next couple weeks. And this, as I described to Andy earlier, this is kind of a rump sermon. This is, this is essentially point one caught up in a full sermon and then dr driving us very fast to the table at the end with the gospel very briefly. And so this, this will not have the fullness of other sermons here, but we want to talk about this. What does it look like to get 
wisdom. And if I could, just you know, as a, as a, as a moment here, it's May. It's graduation season. And so if I could, if I could, I want to just dedicate these sermons to wisdom to all of you high school graduates out there. And we will sing the graduation song at the end of this and say, I hope more than anything else, as you go off to college or wherever you may go, that you will have gotten wisdom. All right, first, real, real quick. First, if we're going to get wisdom, you got to know what it is. And so we're going to begin point one is this, the sense of wisdom. And I use that word importantly, sense. Wisdom is notoriously difficult to define. Wisdom involves knowledge, but it can't just be knowledge. It actually assumes knowledge. If you're going to be wise, you could better acquire knowledge. It is critical. It is an absolute must if you're going to be wise. If you don't know anything about a subject, you can't be wise about a subject. But wisdom is not just being smart and knowing a lot. It extends beyond it. Because we know this because some of the smartest people we know are some of the biggest fools we know. In fact, in, in some of our cases, you, you, the people, it, there's an inverse relationship between IQ and a wise life. Wisdom also assumes morality. So it's not just knowledge, but it assumes morality. But it can't just be morality. Is wisdom the same thing as being good and moral and following the rules? No, but it is based on those things. And let me just say this. If you are not following God's rules, you are by nature biblically unwise. It is, let me just say this, it is not smart to violate the commands of a holy, wrathful God and the creator of the universe. And if he's the creator who made you, informed you, who set this world in motion, who gave it its pattern and its fabric, that he's the one who said, this is the order of the world. And if you don't listen to him, then guess what? Life may often or most often will go badly for you. The world is not random. Just think about it from a physical term. For example, we all know there's a pattern to the physical reality. That's how we're able to do science. For example, aerodynamics. You are an object, unless you obey the laws of aerodynamics, if you were to jump off this building, and unless you have had respect to the pattern of the way aerodynamics works in this world, and you jump off this building, it will end badly for you. In the same way, it is true for our relational world. God has set a pattern in place for our relationships, for our spiritual world, for our emotions, for our vocational world, for our parental world. There is wisdom to be gleaned from God's word and what it says about God's pattern and what he has set in motion in this world. There's a pattern in a moral arc to the universe set in place, and violating that pattern is foolishness. The wise person, though, trusts God. And submits himself to the law of God. And trusts God above himself. Above himself. The child who obeys flourishes. I have my last born child is my most foolish child. And by that I mean this child, more than any of my other children, I will say, don't jump off that. And this child will look at me and say, I know better than you. And this child broke two bones last year. All right? That is my most foolish child. In the same way with you, though, if she would listen to me, life would go better for her. Throughout Proverbs, righteousness and wisdom are used actually interchangeably often. You cannot be wise 
and be disobedient to God. So a key aspect in the Bible is to submit to God in all of your ways, right? Some of you parents, one of the first verses that you want to teach your kids is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your understanding. And you want to say in the preface, in the middle of the line there, because you're stupid. You are so stupid. Do not trust in the Lord with all your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And so while wisdom must be built, though, on submission to God's rules and laws, wisdom, though, is more than that. Wisdom is not the same thing as morality. Obviously, by the way, to be unethical is to be stupid. Even Harvest Business Law teaches you this, right? If you want to have success in business, generally it's good to be ethical. That's the smart thing to do. So obviously, wisdom is not being less than ethical, but it actually goes beyond it. Wisdom is not less than being good, it's more. Wisdom is more than just following the rules. You can be quite moral and be making very stupid decisions. Do you know why? Because there's some commands that are very clear in the Bible, such as don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet, don't steal. But is there a verse in the Bible that tells you who to marry? No. Or what degree path to pursue in college? Now, it gives you, it it does narrow the terms, I think there are some things, some vocations that would be out of bounds, according to God's word. There are certain people that you cannot marry because it would be unequally yoked. That would be against God's word. But within the vast array of all the people out there in the world who are believers, the Bible does not tell you which one to marry. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the 80 to 90% of the life situations in which the moral rules don't apply directly and won't give you the answer. Wisdom is making the right choice when there is no clear moral laws telling you what to do. Not only that, but you can be, seek to be a loving and kind and good and follower of God who, for example, who wants to care very well, to do noble work in this world, and your noble work can cause great destruction in the world. Great destruction. For example, faith shapes social justice, right? But then we have to ask the question, how how and what and why shape face shapes that we want to do good in the economic world but then wisdom says how how do we do that there's a great book a number of years ago i think it's about 10 or 12 years old now it's called when helping hurts and it's become the number one book essentially amongst christians for understanding what it looks like to do mercy because it was is a group of of economists who looked at the way we were doing mercy and they found that actually where christians would go and seek to do quote unquote mercy that they would destroy the economies of everywhere they went because it was patronizing they wouldn't seek to actually give life Welfare system, one could say, there's many aspects to the welfare system. There's noble and good, but how? And often we look at it and we go, ah, that was a wonderful, noble thing to do, but it was also destructive to those you sought to help. And so we have questions like this in regards to our our, our life. Let me just give you another example for so many of you. Right? It is so noble to want to be involved in adoption and foster care. It is a wonderful thing. It is a good thing to draw children into the household of God. That is good and noble, but you can still carry it out in a way that ruins your life and theirs. Right? You can, you have all these questions that wisdom we need in order to do ministry well. Are we ready for this? How many children? When is the right time? Right? Some of you, some of you have made such an idol, and this is a sin issue, 
that you've not been able to see the lack of wisdom that, in which your noble ministries are actually causing destruction in your marriage. And ultimately, the destruction of that marriage will destroy those around you. It's not enough to be a person of high principle. You have to be a person who is wise, or you're going to ruin your life and the life of those around you. Well, I'm attempting to clear the playing field here. <laughs> attempting to clear the playing field of some of those things that might get us to reduce wisdom to something it's not. But now I have to move a little bit more positively towards clarity. We're going to circle the airport a little bit more. And again, I'm not going to come, we're going to get into a sense of the word wisdom. Our English word wisdom, if we're going to look at the Bible, is tr- translates a whole cluster of Hebrew words. Wisdom, therefore, in the Old Testament Jewish tradition is multifaceted. It is like the Hebrew teachers are looking at you and saying, you're going to need a lot of words to understand this. So let's pull some threads together from the Bible as to what the Bible says about wisdom. For example, sometimes wisdom is related to skill. In our Bible reading this week, in our community Bible reading, we read there about an artist named Bezalel. And Bezalel is described as this, that he is said to be wise in his artistic work in the building of the tabernacle. What does that mean? That he knows how to do something. And it describes him as wise. So he knows how to do something. Sometimes wisdom is also related to cunning or cleverness. Ants in Proverbs are described as wise because they're clever planners. They know what to do. They know what to do. So in how to do something and what to do about something, sometimes and often wisdom is related to insight. It is connected to knowledge. For example, at the very beginning of Proverbs, verses 1 and 2, it says this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, he says this to his son, know wisdom and instruction. Understand words of insight. The word there for insight is another word for wisdom that is translated wisdom in other places. It's the Hebrew word bainah. And it's a word that actually means to notice differences, to see distinctions amongst people and in the world around us, to see the slight little nuances going on in life. For example, Sherlock Holmes can, is wise in this way. He has insight. He can walk into a room that everybody else sees nothing. They see nothing but chaos or normalcy, and he can look around a room and he can see insight. Ah, that tells me something. That tells me something. That tells me something. And sometimes wisdom is related to understanding, to know why things are the way they are. The most famous example is actually when God speaks to Job in Job 38. It says this, where God comes to Job finally after Job has been asking, what is going on? Give me understanding. Why the suffering in my life? Why have you destroyed all these things? Why have you allowed this? And God finally shows up to him and he says this, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have the understanding. Tell me if you have the understanding. Job, do you see the things the way they actually are? You have insights, but do you know Why? Do you know why I have done the things that I have done and why I've made them the way I've made them? That is understanding. Wisdom is not just knowing how things are, how things work, why things are, understanding how things happen. It's also then understanding how then shall I live in light of my understanding? How then shall you live? In other words, wisdom is incredibly practical. If you go through the wisdom literature of the Bible, right, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, you will see it gets down to the nitty-gritty of life. It is, wisdom is paired with eating and drinking and working and sexing and financing and toothaches and log splitting. Literally, these are examples. And how to use your time. It is utterly practical. 
It is lived theology. It, it is knowledge that walks. It's knowledge that walks. Biblical wisdom is never the, theoretical, but always practical and lived. Therefore, you could memorize all of Proverbs and still not be wise. Because it is a lived theology. It is practical. If this and this, and I understand this, then now how do I live? And how do I carry that out? So let me draw all these things together for some definitions of wisdom. I'm going to give you the most classic definition of maybe the most longstanding from an academic standpoint, Gerhard von Rod. I know, that makes me feel very important, but I know, how to, I know guys whose names are Gerharis von Rod. Here's, he wrote this book called Wisdom in Israel. Here's his definition. Wisdom is becoming competent with regard to the realities of life, knowing how things really happen, how things really are, and knowing what to do about it. Von Rod elsewhere actually it says that wise, those the wise have knowledge and they have moral character, but they also have to have a heart, heart for doing the right thing when it is not clear how the rules apply. That's wisdom. I'm going to give you my definition, which is rather cheeky of me, isn't it? Um, but wisdom is this. Wisdom is the skill in applying knowledge, knowledge of God's insight and God's understanding of the world, submitting to God's view and knowing how to live it out today. Let me give you some more, also just a few other earthy definitions. Rankin Wilburn says this, Wisdom is knowing God's world and having a knack for living in it. Wisdom is knowing how to live on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon at 4 o'clock. What to do then? Now, you might go, well, that was really um, super helpful. I hope, you have a, I hope you have at least a little bit more of a sense. You're hovering over it. And you might be like, this feels like Genesis 1 where the spirit was hovering over the world and it was formless and void. That's how my sense of wisdom is. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to move on. But hopefully you have a little more clarity, a little more sense than you did 10 minutes ago on what wisdom is and what it is not. And where do we go from here today? You would say, well, well the natural question is, well, how do I get it? If it's so important and we've, we've now chatted about what it is, it might be helpful for me to know how to get it. Well, you know what? We're not going to do that this week, and I'm sorry. We're going to come back to that in a couple weeks. There is something you need to know to be wise. There's another preliminary principle that the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants you to know before you set out on a journey to find wisdom, and that is this. Wisdom has limits. It has limits. It says this in Ecclesiastes 7, 23 and 24, all I have tested by wisdom, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out, he says. In other words, what is he saying? Wisdom is great. Get it. Ah, but you're going to be limited as to how much you can get. You're going to be limited as to how much you get. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 said this. He goes on in his frustrations about the limits of wisdom. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. I set my whole life to figure it out, and then you know what I found? I couldn't figure it out. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. <laughs> Can I just say this? Wisdom is having knowledge of God's insight and understanding of the world. That's really important. That's what we, I said in my definition. It's having God's insight into the, the world, the way it's broken and the way it's patterned and the way it's shaped. But then it also says this to us in Ecclesiastes, but you won't know everything and you won't understand everything God does. There's a limit to what God has done that you can understand or know, 
and then ultimately you will not fully understand everything God does. So let me press this in for just a second. Proverbs shows us that there is a correlation. What the book of Proverbs tends to do is show us a correlation between virtue or wise living and happiness. There is a pattern to the world God has made, a moral arc we said earlier, and often virtue and wisdom is rewarded with a good life. Proverbs said, do things, do good, and things will go well for you. But to get the Bible's full picture of wisdom, you have to read beyond Proverbs and do Ecclesiastes and Job. And for example, we read a, read a couple weeks ago in Ecclesiastes verse, chapter 8, verse 16, where it says, oh, it's so frustrating. The righteous are treated like they're wicked, and the wicked are treated like they're righteous. And we say with our kids, that's not fair. We addressed this a couple weeks ago. We add to our suffering by being surprised by it. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, left to our own smarts, to our own observations, no matter how far we advance, we will never be able to fathom the full meaning of life on our own. We can't figure it out. You won't be able to do it. God is in control, and God has his reasons, and often he hides them from you. And wouldn't you know, he does it on purpose. That scoundrel. If you think you can straighten out and figure out all of God's ways and understand what he has done in this world, or you insist that God is being unjust, then guess what? You are being unwise. If you can think you can figure out all that God has done, then you are being unwise. Trevor Lawman, who's one of the great commentators in the Old Testament poetic literature, said this. Job, Job, for example, is a wisdom debate between Job and God. Job, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, Job never understands why he suffered. He never understands why so many things bad to him come to him. There's a lack in his wisdom. Job encounters the presence of God in his pain, but the he, Job, is described as a wise man because at the end of the book of Job, he finally, Job, he finally says this, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, that sounds like harsh language. What he's saying is this, I have made too much of my own wisdom. I have brought my questions before you, and I've realized I, I, I've, I've, I've floated too high too close to the sun, that these are things that are beyond me, and you have quieted and stilled me with your questions. Job learned his place, and sooner or later, wisdom submits to the limits of our wisdom. Aren't we a funny people? We don't know or understand the mind of the human being that we sleep next to most nights of the week, and yet we think that we can try to understand the ways of God. So this is the bad news for us. Our hearts are set upon, and one of the reasons why we can't understand God, and the reasons why we actually don't become wise, is it's not just because there are limits to our wisdom, but also this is because it says, as it says in Proverbs, foolishness is caught up in the heart of a child. We are born foolish. We are born unwilling to submit to the limits of our wisdom. We are born not trusting in God's wisdom, but trusting in our own. The fool will never get wise because he thinks he is wise. What did it say in, in the verse, in the psalm we sang this morning, All I Have is Christ? It begins with this, right? It talks about the path. I thought I knew what was right, and what I thought was right led me to death. This is the bad news, and this is the heart of man. And one of the hallmarks of biblical wisdom 
of someone who's been given true biblical wisdom is knowing the limitations of our wisdom. We see this in the New Testament as well. It becomes an aspect of worship. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Life does not make sense, Job says. This is not fair, says the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Children get cancer, and I've lost my job when I did really well. The wisest person you know gets hit and killed in a car wreck instantly. What's the, I don't understand this. Wisdom is being wise enough to know that sometimes you just won't know. You won't know. Proverbs 21 verse 30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Wisdom acknowledges the limits of our understanding. And then the wise man submits to this truth that my greatest wisdom, my greatest wisdom is still lower than the very foolishness of God. And here we've been circling the airport in this rather opaque look at wisdom. And now we're dive bombing towards the airport and the table. And that is here, we're, so we're kind of stopping and dropping out of the clouds. And here we need to look at the foolishness of wisdom. If the very foolishness, what is described, the foolishness of God is more wise than your best laid plans. It says this, where do you get wisdom? It says this in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 16 and 17, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Where do you get wisdom? We're going to answer it in a couple weeks, but let me give you, let me drop some breadcrumbs. You get it? Where do you find it? At the poor man, the seat of the poor man. And in the place of one who is quiet, who's quiet, who has nothing seemingly to offer, if you're looking for wisdom, don't get mesmerized by the status of the wise people of the world. Don't be impressed by the loudness of some. Instead, find witness, wisdom in the quietness of the lowly, among the unpretentious people, among the quiet and the old and the shriveled. The words of the wise are found in the most unsightly of places. Let me give you an example. This is a little bit lengthy illustration, and we're going back to Scotland. There was a pastor named John Kennedy, not that John Kennedy. He wasn't, this guy's much wiser. He was in Scotland pastoring in the 1850s. He was well known for that time in Scotland. His father had actually been a pastor in the same area in a number of places. And one of the places that, that his father, that John Kennedy's father had served was in a city called Loch Broom. John Kennedy tells of time that he was asked to make a pastoral call. And he went to see two, a dying woman, and he said this and wrote this of the encounter. Upon reaching the place to which I was directed, I found what was a dark and filthy attic in which I could observe nothing until my eyes adjusted to the dimness of the room. The first object I could discern was an old woman crouching on a stone beside a low fire, who, as he soon ascertained, was unable to move about except for on all fours. Quite near the fire, I then saw a bed on which a still older woman was stretched. This woman was stone blind and on the very gates of death herself. The two women were sisters, and they were miserable indeed. The one, 
with her breasts and face devoured by cancer, she was the one who was the healthier and could only move about on all fours. The other was blind and dying. They were from Lockbroom, the place where Kennedy's father had once pastored. And they had spoken, he'd only spoken with them for a few short minutes, when one of them spoke of the days of his father's labors, his pastor in their homeland parish. And the women could share here in this dark place of their first impression of the things of the Lord, which they had heard in their first sermon they ever heard from John Kennedy's father. The good news they remembered of the doctrine that that sermon was as fresh on their minds and gave cheer to them even in this dark and dismal place as when they had first heard it nearly half a century before. And then he said this, the good news which they had heard so long ago was the humble hope of both of them. And they shined with that hope. And their cheerful resignation to the will of God that I could not but regard them even in their dark and filthy attic as being at the very threshold of glory. And I left them with a very different feeling than that which I first looked upon them. Nor could I, after leaving them, see among the happy and the frivolous folks among whom I passed on the streets with all their wealth and health and comforts and cheerfulness, could I compare in point of true happiness with those two old wretched women in that cheerless attic. He says this, don't look for wisdom in the high and mighty places. You will not get for direction from life, from the rich and the loud and the brash and the beautiful and the brilliant, but most likely among the plain and the obscure and the quiet and the common, those who have suffered and learned to drink deeply of the glory of God. But what if wisdom is found at the feet of another pitiful creature? One who is called a man of sorrows, who is described as having no beauty at all that we should desire him. One who the fools of the world declared was a fool indeed. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved... It is the power of God. Paul says the cross is foolishness to us. The foolishness of the cross, it's the foolishness of Christ, it's the foolishness of grace. What does he mean when he says the cross is foolishness? When Jesus came to earth as a Messiah, he said, I am the Messiah here. I have come to bring them the kingdom of God. But how does he bring the kingdom of God? Does he do it with might and power? Does he do it with great riches? Does he show up to the world and say, I'm going to blast you away with my intellect and I'm going to convince all of you of the wise way with my perfect arguments? He does make arguments, but that is ultimately not how he chooses to bring life and wisdom. But Jesus comes and what does he most profoundly lead with? He leads with a cross. Paul says by the world's standards, that's utterly foolishness, and it is. In fact, he says later on that if there is no resurrection, then we are the ones who are most to be pitied because we've given our life to a lie, a lie that causes us to live a life of foolishness in the eyes of the world. But at the cross, what we see is this. We see the greatest act of submission to God's obedience to the command of God. Wisdom requires following God's commands. And Jesus does just that. Even when that command meant go to the cross. 
And it's also based on perfect knowledge because Jesus comes and he knows exactly what the world needs. A world that is so foolish that it thinks that it is wise. God knew that a world of foolish sinners can what? Can they save themselves? No, because the people who are most lost are those who think they're not lost at all. And they can't even find the road to God because their hearts are unable to accept the wisdom of God. But God had to address sin in our foolishness by crushing it without crushing the child in whom that heart of foolishness resided. And so what did he decide to do? The foolishness of cross is that he gave our foolishness, placed our foolish hearts and our foolish acts upon Christ Jesus, and he bore them on the cross. He took our sin and he placed it on Jesus. And so only because of the cross, not only because of the cross does Jesus remove the penalty of the cross, of, the, of our sin and our foolishness from us. But now in Christ Jesus, if we will cling, if we will come to the cross and we'll say, ah, I, think, I think this might be the beginning place of wisdom. And if we will follow him by faith, then what you may be invited into is into the very presence of God where you might be learned to tremble at his feet. Tremble at his feet. And it is there, as we will see in two weeks, is the true beginning of wisdom. You are invited in, invited in.